My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing in our study on the book of Daniel. If you didn't get a listening guide, uh, you can just uh, lift your hand up. Uh, someone, uh, Chris Burton himself, will get you one from from the back. It will aid your uh, study of this passage, give you a place to take uh, notes. Uh, this is our third week in uh, the book of Daniel. If you, if you need another one, you can you can lift your hand up. If uh, he, he, Chris would be more than happy to get you one. Um, and you might remember just a few weeks ago we were in the book of Ruth, and though separated by many centuries and uh, a ways away in your Old Testament. Actually, both books are in the, the writings. You know, Jesus read the Bible, remember, Road to Emmaus. He explained how the law and the prophets were all about him. Law, prophets, and writings. And uh, separated just by a few books uh, in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, the writings, really in a poetic form, uh, unpack the uh, the whole storyline of the Old Testament. And then as, as you get into Daniel, it continues that narrative, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, concluding with uh, the book of Chronicles. We're not going to cover the full chapter of uh, Daniel 2. We don't want to be here till one o'clock, and uh, I think Alex and Trinity Kids would kill us if we did that. So today we have an interesting passage. We're, we're going to cover the first 16 verses in uh, Daniel 2 that doesn't get into the content of the dream, which is uh, truly the main point of uh, this uh, chapter. But we're, we're setting the stage, setting the scene. And uh, so we're, we're going to work through the passage and uh, then uh, dive into a few truths we learn from it. So join me in prayer. Father God, we need faith to believe. We understand faith is, is a gift from you that we, we can't muster it up on our own. We, we need faith to, to believe and to do what your word says. I pray uh, that, that you would give us that gift as we come to your word today. In Christ's name, amen. So do you like challenging opportunities? Most people, to some extent or another, like, like something that's a little more challenging. You don't want to spend your whole life jumping over, you know, super low bars of, I just want to come to work, no, you know, no less than two hours late. And I made it. I was only an hour and a half late. Like, that's not really, most people have a little higher bars. Maybe not that much higher, but a little higher bars uh, than uh, that. Uh, this week, uh, been talking about who gets home first. Uh, the great philosopher uh, Hosanna uh, said to Michelle, "Mommy, uh, you're lucky to lose." Th that's you know that's like Brown style motivation right there. You know, we'll just be consistent. I, I mean, come on, they're consistent. We consistently lose. We fire coaches that you know, lose two, then they have to win a game, like, just, just be consistent and lose. And that's not, but that's not what most of us uh, want. We, we want something that challenges us. We want to succeed at it. We want to succeed where other people 
uh, didn't try, where other people couldn't. It feels great uh, to, in a sense, prove your worth at something, to conquer it. However, there's a difference between given, being given a very challenging task and one that is seemingly impossible, you know, where the teacher isn't grading on a curve, not given half points. There's a big difference. Well, let's say, let's say Apple Patch came to us and said, we want you guys to repaint this whole chapel today. We, we we're into the whole organic thing, so we're not giving you actual paint with all those bad, you know, chemicals or whatever could be in, in paint. We'll, we'll give you uh, some flour. Of course, you got water in the back. Give you some coloring uh, pigments, iron sulfate, linseed oil, dishwashing soap, or whatever else WikiHow said you need to make your own paint. And, and they, they give it to us. You, you might first be wondering, like, is this really, are we really the crew to be doing this today? Like, that's a pretty tight deadline. And let's just, for instance, say that we had some good training on painting. It took more than a class or two. And we were, as close as you could say, some of the best in the business. Could we make that happen? Well, you might be rearranging your, you know, Father's Day plans and... I imagine our first try at making paint from all those random ingredients might you know, might need some modification, and but but we could probably pull it off. It would definitely be challenging, and hopefully it would look better than Trinity kids just like coloring on the walls. But but let's say they said, no no no, we're going all organic in the sense of we're not giving you anything. You can't use, you can't go out buy paint, you can't go get dirt from outside. You know, Cademan, you can't even take your own blood and use that for paint. There, nothing. Well, I mean, we, we could ask for more time, but, you know, how are we going to paint it without, without anything? That's really an impossible task. We would be hoping that they would just uh, relent and say, yeah, you never... Never mind this whole. Go to Home Depot, pick up a can of paint, and and get to work. And and that's exactly what the uh, magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, the Chaldeans, uh, were presented with in, in this uh, passage. This is a tremendous opportunity for honor, uh, for recognition, for their work and their success as the, shall we say, professional interpretation team in, uh, in the land. And, and, and they were initially excited about this opportunity. Well, let's start out uh, verse 1, chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants a dream and we will show the interpretation. 
It seems like perfect opportunity for them to show their worth to the king to do what they were getting paid to do. Just a few notes on these first few verses. This is rooted in history. It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that in this book, we get episodes in Daniel's life to tell a theological story. This isn't a play-by-play of his entire life. Much ink has been spilt on trying to figure out how this fits in with chapter 1 and how could this be going on with what we saw in chapter 1. I'm not concerned about that. That's not what the book of Daniel is presented as, and it's not trying to help you fill in all the gaps of his whole life and get a, he did this this day, this that day, and then this came up. This is, these are, shall we say, theological episodes in his life. And Nebuchadnezzar here has troubling dreams, and he can't sleep. There is one dream, it has numerous elements, that is particularly troubling to him, very disconcerting. And he, he wants to know the meaning. In this culture, and this day and age, it, it was better to know the meaning, even if the meaning wasn't what you were hoping it would be. It's better to know the meaning than to not have someone who can tell you the meaning. Because at least we, we can see that at least you can act on whatever uh, the interpretation, the meaning of your dream or dreams. You can at least act on that. So he brings in the, these professionals, uh, all of them, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, Chaldeans. This isn't used uh, at this uh, point here in uh, the book of Daniel, not used in the ethnic sense, but refers to the Babylonian uh, wise men and astrologers. And then we see the book goes at Aramaic on us uh, all the way into the uh, end of chapter uh, 7. And, and I know we kind of like to divide the book of Daniel as in first like six chapters are the, the easy narrative stuff and then that seven beyond like, that's crazy stuff. Who knows what your pastors are going to say about that. Uh, but but the, the text uh, groups uh, chapters uh, 2 through 7 together. And when we get to uh, chapter 7, uh, you're going to see a lot of similarities to uh, chapter 2. And uh, we have some, though this is narrative, we have some uh, pretty uh, crazy prophecy going on. And we'll see that in the the coming weeks. All right, verse, verse five. Let's keep moving. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make 
the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So some of you might have read this passage growing up, that the matter is gone for me. Now, it's, it's a difficult uh, Aramaic word to translate. Uh, could mean the matter is publicly known. Probably in the ESV gets it right, that the matter or the decision is firm. Nebuchadnezzar isn't changing his mind. And uh, the context is quite clear that he does have a, a, at least a pretty good grasp on his dream. That's why this doesn't turn into a creative writing class with these uh, professional interpretation team, just who can write the best, most believable dream. They know he he knows at least a good amount of it. He remembers it, and making something up isn't going to cut it for King Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have significant reports of other kings doing Something like this, it seems quite unique, but it makes sense. He, he wants to make sure he can trust the interpretation. Uh, the wise men know the Babylonian science and art of interpretation, but I mean, they have no clue uh, how to come up with the dream itself. Uh, there, there no classes on that. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to be played by them. Uh, on the other side, these Babylonian wise men uh, insist again that the king tell them the dream so they, they can tell the interpretation. They, they have no way to come up with this uh, on their own. They, they ask for more time, but as you see, King Nebuchadnezzar is exactly right. It's not because they think they're going to somehow come up with it. They just are waiting for the times to change, Nebuchadnezzar to relent, and just, all right, all right, I'll just tell you the dream you guys do what you say you can do and uh, give me the interpretation. All right, verse 10, the wise men finally get honest uh, with the king. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands for no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. This isn't what they wanted to admit. They wanted the honor, the reward attached to fulfilling this request, but but they don't have any other option. They say what the king is asking is unreasonable. It's not what they profess to do. It's not what any other wise men in any other countries. It's not, not what they can do either. And there's no human that can do this. And they, they say that Nebuchadnezzar's only hope uh, to disclose the dream to him is the gods who don't live with humanity. So they doesn't, they're saying they don't have any way to access that knowledge. And as you've probably gathered in this story so far, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar isn't uh, one of the most reasonable guys out there. Uh, nope, it, he, he's not giving in 
This confirms his suspicions. It infuriates him. He doubles down uh, on the opportunity to prove that he's a man of his word. And they, they knew this, the people interacting with him of the day, and certainly the wise men, that, that they knew what type of man he was. But just in case we don't, we'll, we'll see in the next chapter in Daniel, um, King Nebuchadnezzar just decides to throw uh, Daniel's friends into a furnace that was heated way too hot. We learn uh, later in his life, he slaughters uh, Zedekiah's sons, right in front of Zedekiah's eyes, and then gouges out Zedekiah's eyes. Like, this, this is not, not a good guy. Uh, he, isn't, he isn't changing his mind. Uh, v- verse 12, Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariak, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Ariak, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Ariak made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So then Daniel and his companions come onto the scene. Uh, they're complete outsiders to the situation. Well, we don't know exactly why. So the story isn't concerned to tell us that. But Daniel literally returns prudence and discretion. That that's two terms fun- functioning together to give one idea. And he goes to the king for time. Uh, please note here, Daniel doesn't know the dream. Daniel doesn't know the interpretation. But he's going to the king to, that he might show the interpretation to the king. He's not just trying to arrange a time, and he has it all in his back pocket. He knows the dream. He knows the interpretation. Let's go. He, he doesn't know either of those yet. God hasn't revealed that to him. So but you might respond, well, th- this isn't great risk. He's already going to be killed along with these other wise men. So it's not really putting his neck out there. I mean, it kind of already is out there. But it, yeah, e- even if his neck is already out there, it certainly is putting his God out there, opening God up for shame and ridicule if Daniel doesn't reveal the dream and the interpretation as he's uh, just uh, promised the king he's going to do. But the good news is that Daniel doesn't serve one of the powerless gods of Babylon. He serves the one true God. He knows his God, and he knows his God does not fail. So, So what do we learn about God from this passage? Many truths, here are four of them, some of which I'll I'll develop more than others. Here are four of them from this passage. Uh, First of all, our God is in complete control of all things, even dreams. And he can give them to whoever 
whenever he wants. Here he gives it to a pagan king while God's people are in exile. You cannot read this passage without seeing God's sovereignty at work. The most powerful man in the greatest nation on earth at the time was left powerless by God wondering about this dream. No wise men magicians to interpret it, to tell him his dream. This is God ordaining the ends, but he's also even ordaining the means to those ends because we'll see in the next chapter that Nebuchadnezzar is going to take some actions based on this dream and God's using that as partially the means by which he works the end. God is in complete control. He His plans and purposes are happening. That's our God. Is God still in complete control of all things? Absolutely. Can he still use dreams? He sure can. God God can use whatever he wants to. He, He can do what he wants. He's God. Just a few, you know, pointers of, you know, the basics of, well, well, how do I know a dream is from God? Well, well first of all, it's not going to contradict God's word. You know, if your dream somehow leads to, you know, you having sex with someone who's not your spouse, it, it's pretty confident, uh, I can say, that, that that's from the evil one. That certainly is not from God. But, but at the same time, we know Satan isn't in the business of having more people worship Jesus. So if you have a dream to go to Southeast Asia and visit the Kuipers, I'm confident that that's not Satan, you know, trying to let's send them all to, to, to reach the lost people in that area. That, that, that's from God. You, you should, should listen to it. Uh, our God is in complete control of all things. Remind yourself of this this week when when you're at work and you have no clue why you have such a foolish boss. Remind yourself of this when, when you wonder why God has given you the annoying neighbors he has and, and you're tempted to grow weary in mission to them. Our God is sovereign over all things, even dreams, as in this passage. And, and that leads us to our next truth, that our God is greater and nearer than all other gods. The narrator is careful to record the pagan wise men speaking far better than they know. Verse 11 again. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Oh, the irony they speculate that the Babylonian gods know the dream. They, they, they don't. But, but our God does. Our God is the one who gave it to King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the message uh, through the, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, you know, through Moses, it didn't have to do with uh, identifying the number of God gods out there. The call was to worship the one true God who is far more powerful than 
any other gods of the surrounding nations. The fo focus wasn't on the existence, non-existence of these other gods. Now, Jeremiah and other prophets get into it and uh, ha have a fun time of poking fun at these other powerless gods. But the focus is to worship our one God who is completely deserving of worship. We, we can see here that our God is greater than all other gods competing for that praise. Whether they're gods of wood and stone or, or gods like money or fame. And our God is not distant from humanity. He is near to his people. Don't see this as a truth we're reading back into the Old Testament. This is something Old Testament saints, just like Daniel, firmly believed. That unlike the gods of the pagan nations, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob spoke to his people. He created them by breathing life into them. He redeemed them in the exodus out of Egypt. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He conquered the promised land for them. He was to be their king. He raised up their leaders. He spoke to them. This is not a distant, nearly impossible God, pagan God of the nations around. This is our God. And when we get to the New Testament, we see the ultimate display of God's imminence, God's nearness. He comes to live with us and die on our behalf to secure our home with him forever. That's our God. If you are a Christian today, uh, may this be a reminder of who our God is and kindle anew your affections uh, for our God, that you would value him more than all the other gods competing for your attention, for your worship. Our God is more powerful and nearer than all other gods. If you're not a Christian today, may the Holy Spirit be working in you, giving you desires for this God and a distaste for the gods you currently bow down to. See the all-powerful, near God. And this leads us to another truth from our passage that our God calls us to radical confidence in him. Hopefully it's starting to sink in that Daniel didn't know this dream. Daniel didn't know the interpretation yet. And this is told in the form of a narrative meant to provide for us character or characters to emulate. That, that certainly isn't Nebuchadnezzar, certainly isn't this interpretation team. And this, this passage, that's Daniel. He has faith in what God would do. He has unwavering confidence in the character of God. And, and I want to have that too. I, I hope you do also. But here's the temptation. We all here would admit, well, I, I don't know. I don't really have that kind of faith, unwavering confidence in God. 
and, and the temptation is just to leave here and I, don't, I really don't know how to get that type of faith. And you know, it's not like it's just one more step for me to be like, like Daniel here and to leave here and go our way and just remain as we are. Let me present an alternative question for you. What is the next step for you in developing faith like that of Daniel? Let me just give you a few ideas I came up with. Michelle has said I had too much IPA, so we'll see how, much, uh, how helpful these are to you. But, but what is the next step in, for you in giving generously back to God because he owns everything anyways? Maybe what is the next step in you, for you in a church involvement you know, despite the busyness of your schedule. For, for me, last year, that, that was exactly it. The last year around this time, I was like, how can we do this whole church plan? I got all these other, other things going on in life. And maybe, what's the next step in you, uh, for you in sharing the gospel with your coworkers? And, and you're not sure how they're going to react. You're not sure what questions they might ask. You're not sure how your relationship with them will be after you clearly present the gospel to them. Confidence is only worth what it's anchored in, and thankfully our confidence is anchored in our unchanging God who proved, has proved himself over and over and over again. He's going to prove himself in this passage. I know, spoiler alert. But that is our God. And there's one more truth I want you guys to see from this passage. Just a quick read over it. Um, very well might miss this truth. And you might be wondering when you saw my title, like, this guy was, must have been really confused at this, like, this passage. You know, I know it's the Old Testament, but what does Joseph have to do with, he's back in Genesis. What does Joseph have to do with Daniel? He, he surely is is going crazy. But, but last truth from this passage is our God sends a new Joseph in preparation for the new Exodus. Remember in, in chapter 1 that Daniel was of good appearance you know, when he was selected as one of the Jewish youths to begin this indoctrination process, just like Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, as Genesis says. But in chapter 2, we get to even greater correspondences that a pharaoh was trouble, troubled by a dream and all his Egyptian magicians and wise men couldn't interpret it. Here, Nebuchadnezzar can't get his magicians, wise men, to tell him the dream and, it, and uh, interpret it. You just like it, it was made known to Pharaoh that Joseph could interpret it, here we have Daniel requesting a meeting with King Nebuchadnezzar to present the dream and its interpretation. And he's confident that God's going to provide us, provide him that information. Just as Joseph proclaimed the interpretation belongs to God, it is very clear at this stage in the passage that if Daniel's going to have a dream to share, an interpretation to give, it's not going to be anything because of Daniel. It's got to be something that God 
reveals uh, to him. The narrator carefully crafts the story to help us as the audience and the original audience uh, see the correspondences between uh, Joseph and Daniel. It's good writing, but it's far more than that. Daniel was not only following in Joseph's footsteps, but he was the new Joseph as a forerunner to a coming new exodus. Remember the exodus, the single uh, most defining event in the history of the nation of Israel. God redeeming them out of Egypt. And Daniel sees that a new exodus must happen. God's people are in exile. There is a new exodus coming. But, but that exodus wasn't accomplished when the people got back to the land. Because though uh, under King Cyrus and they, they made it back to the land, that they were out of Egypt, but Egypt wasn't out of them. The people would have to wait a few more centuries for the new Moses to lead his people out of slavery. And, and this new Moses didn't just bring his people to a new land. He got Egypt out of his people by giving them new hearts with the Holy Spirit living inside of them, new affections. That's the new exodus, a greater exodus that this new Joseph, Daniel, points to and was a forerunner. So don't just emulate Daniel's faith, but he points to a greater Moses whose name is Jesus. Worship him. Prefer him above all else. That's the call. To me, that's the call to us today. It applies just as much to you if you've been a Christian here 30 years as it applies to you if you're not a Christian yet and you still have questions. Let me pray for us to that end. Father God, we, we thank you for Daniel. We thank you uh, for his uh, faith in this passage. We see we, we want to be like that, but even more, we thank you for Jesus, how Daniel points to Jesus. We, we worship him. We need him and the new exodus. We, we need his deliverance from sin. We, we thank you for the redemption that is found in him. I, I pray for those of us here. I pray for uh, those of us who are Christians that we would cherish, value Jesus more today because of hearing from your word. I pray for uh, those who uh, ha- have questions and not really sure yet. I, I pray that you would produce faith in them, that they would see the glorious nature of Jesus. They wouldn't just try to be better, to demonstrate more faith, to have more confidence on their own. They would understand that won't work, then they need to trust in what Jesus has accomplished. 
and have faith in him. We pray this all in his glorious name. Amen.